Like we need to stop assuming that this is a problem that can be solved by the same solutions that created the problem. And if I can add on to this, another nuance of this, the, the comet symbolism misses is that it's climate change is something outside of us being mm -hmm. acted upon us mm -hmm. rather than something that's within us that we are acting upon the world. Yeah. And I think that's the crucial thing that needs to be shifted. Right. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast. We have guests today. Guests who have come to help us get out of the matrix. Yeah, that's what we try to do. Not like we can do it on our own. We have conversations and then the conversations lead to an awakening or, or sometimes they lead to darkening and you get more confused. I don't know. I'm not promising anything. Theology, history, philosophy is what we're doing. And then immersive experiences in the field with First Things Foundation to try to figure out what the heck is going on today. I'm Watar. Jake Marquez and Marin Morgan, filmmakers, podcasters, environmental activists. They talk to us about their wacky idea, which isn't so wacky at all. Fixing the environment by starting maybe with a conversation about the unseen. This is Watar. Good to have you. Jake and Marin, who are doing this incredible project death in the garden and you're here and where are you right now in utah yeah salt lake city salt lake city so here's the deal our crew who listens to this i would say most of them are east coast people what's a utah person like you guys are, are you Utah people by definition? Or have yeah. you put on the Utah clothing? Like, who are you guys out there in Utah? We're the, we're the real Utahns. See, now Salt Lake City right now is transforming a lot because of the mass exodus from California. That's kind uh, of the current running joke that we're getting all of the Californians and rents going up and prices are going up and uh, the <laughs> ski resorts are packed now. You know what I mean? No but we're the real Utahns. We're those real kids who grew up in the mountains, grew up in this valley that was, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were formed by the culture here. Um, both of us were raised Catholic, though, in a very like predominantly Mormon city. And so that sort of gave us a outlier. Different... Yeah, yeah. We're... outliers right there. Absolutely. Like it's a little bit of a different flavor of what, you know, generally Utahns kind of experience, I would say. Uh, we both sort of grew up. We, we, we went to rival high schools, um, but we both grew up sort of. Uh, isolated in the sense that everyone around us seemed to feel like the world was like normal as it was. Mm -hmm. And we both grew up feeling that everything was very, very wrong, that something was really, really wrong here. And we couldn't really put our finger on it because nobody else seemed to have that sort of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also identifying too, on a cultural level, like when you are in a place like Salt Lake City and it is so religious, you get these self kind of supporting bubbles of consciousness yeah. of yeah. worldviews yeah but then being on the outside of that but also kind of half in a different bubble of a worldview with like utah catholicism and then neither of us really keeping that tradition as we grew up but then being able to see as we grew up and uh, you know see things from a third person's perspective from the religious kind of point of view i think gave us both a framework of kind of seeing the world and trying to to understand it in that way, you know? Well, yeah. well your, your journey, your expertise, the reason I'm so excited to have you guys on here is that you've become experts on the art 
of environmentalism, but from a different angle, the angle that allows you to listen to people like Paul Kingsnorth or read his stuff. That's how we got to know each other. So tell us about your project and how it might be relevant to our conversation about old world, new world stuff. What, what are you working on? What is death in the garden? All right. So death in the garden is a, a film that is in production right now. And the, it originally started because I think it was the big question that we've kind of come down to is, you know, since the 1960s, when Rachel Carson wrote her book, Silent Spring, mm -hmm. it was the real first book that kind of popped a cultural narrative and a cultural myth that the natural world is infinitely exploitable. And with her book, um, she kind of showed that, that's, that, that she showed that fallacy. And what I'm getting at is that since the 1960s, since the start of this big environmental movement, there has been so much action, there's been so much money and funding and invention and like all these things trying to tackle the problem of climate change and global warming yet by all means nothing has really gotten better things are getting worse and that's not to say that people aren't trying really hard and there hasn't been a lot of amazing things to happen but by and large we're still on that same path and so for us death in the garden started to ask questions well why like why is mm -hmm. it because we don't have enough solar panels or is it because of something else and so we tried to think outside of the box of why could things possibly not be getting better which kind of led us to begin looking at through various authors and thinkers that maybe there are narratives and mythologies that are so ambient and unconscious within our culture that drive us to think about the global crises in the same way that got us in the trouble in the first place. Yeah, right. And maybe I'll let Marin pick up from there. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I, you know, am so grateful to all of the people that we've been able to interview in the books that we've been able to read that have allowed us to sort of skip over, you know, like decades of steps to to reach the point where we're at where shoulders of giants. Yeah, you know, uh huh. really the, the the world is going to be changed by people standing on the shoulders of the elders who went mm -hmm. through all of these things and really uh embodied the desire for change that I think that we're all trying to see in modernity, but really what we're, what we have come down to is that there is an ontological perspective that we're operating from that I don't think most people are aware of. And what we have sort of pinpointed is that the, the place where that began was and, and we don't know, there's no way to really define exactly when this would have happened or like mm -hmm. if there was one singular moment that created this sort of separation. But there, there is, there's got to be a point in history where we decided that the natural world needed to be controlled rather than allowing the natural world to be as it was and to surrender to the um, process of life and death and life being reborn. And so we've really pinpointed part of the reason why it's called death in the garden is because we felt that death, that this question of death of like denying death was really seminal in the sort of worldview that, and, and this was sort of precognitive, like we, we didn't even really realize the depth that this was going to come to when we decided to name it death in the garden, you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Right. Um, and we the, didn't realize. That's the Sorry, way the icon ahead. works. That's the way that 
the spiritual world works, which is yeah. fascinating. You only think yeah. you're saying something, you're actually saying something much deeper, but sorry, I cut you yeah. off. So, no. Oh no, you're good. So you are awakening to something. You're awakening to a reality about environmentalism. Would you guys call yourself environmental activists just for people listening? Is that now don't get me wrong. You might not want to put yourself in that category. I don't know. I, I think of you that way. Is that okay to say, or is that not all right to say? Sure. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a problem with uh, being called an environmental activist per se. I think it's a fair categorization, just given the field that we're working in. But I think that a lot of environmentalists would really bristle at a lot really of what we're us, saying yeah. and really will probably hate our film <laughs> because because <laughs> really what we're trying to do is we're trying to break down so much of modern environmentalism and sort of call it for what it is, which is that it's in a lot of ways, it has become an expression of this thing that has caused us to be so disparate from nature. Okay. So let's do us. the thing, the thing that causes us, cause that's, that's, that's our jumping off point. The right. thing that causes us this disparate, degenerate, right. Um, less than efficacious environmentalism, the thing that's not working, what causes us in your mind? And I'm thinking that's what the film is about. Well, I think I think there's a, a million ways to describe this thing. And depending on the day, I would probably describe it differently. But for us, if we're going to let's say that, you know, the name death in the garden, like death, like ultimately, what does death represent? Death represents the ultimate truth, maybe the only real truth next to life of the universe. And huh. that. And so by this denial or avoidance or attempt to control death, therefore the natural world as it is, that's where we were led astray. And so it's, it's the world as a machine viewpoint, right. you know, and for, and as of late, I'm getting my head around this where for so much of human history, the world was not seen as a machine. It was seen as alive and animistic and imbued with everything. And that didn't meet, make us inherently good or bad or, or, you know, protective over nature, but it sure as hell didn't lead to the situation we're in now. Right. And so I, I think that the, it's this reducing the world down to a machine and that narrative, and we can get into how that came about sure. and the nuances of the, of the machine world, but ultimately, the unchecked assumption in modern environmentalism is still this reductionist materialist theology, which is that if we can isolate individual mechanistic problems and remove them from the equation of the machine, we'll be fine. And that leads us to things that are now being coined as um, carbon fundamentalism. And now it's not that carbon in the atmosphere isn't a problem it's arguable that if it's the problem amongst many, 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 many problems, because the world cannot be reduced down to one problem. And mm -hmm. so you'll find in environmentalism sometimes it gets so narrowed down because of this, this uh, unconscious machine worldview right. because that we're applying the same thinking. Because, yeah, tell me if I'm right, because this is good. This goes to... For people who are listening, you've heard me talk about Philip Sherrard a lot. And these guys, Jake, you and Marin, our first talk was really cool because it was in alignment with the stuff that sort of kicked this podcast off. So, Jake, am I right to hear 
the people trying to fix the problem keep using, right, a mechanical mindset to fix the problem of mechanicalism, shall we say yeah. it like that? Is <laughs> yeah. that part of what the problem is? I would say that, you know, we've been met with a lot of acceptance and a lot of people being really excited about the the, um, people have gone on the similar journey that we have and have come to similar conclusions. There's been a lot of people like that. There has been a lot of resistance to what we're saying, though. Um, And I think a lot of it comes down to this idea that a lot of people want to have have misequated saving the world within saving industrial civilization. Those two things have become the same thing to people. And so when we say, and we suggest like, Hey, maybe this, maybe those two things actually need to be separated. And if we're going to save the world, that means that there are things about industrial civilization that cannot be saved. People really, really don't like to hear that. And I understand because it's scary. It requires a lot of responsibility for people to have to come to that awareness of like, oh, okay. So if I can't be reliant upon this system to take care of me and manage this problem for me, then I have to be responsible for myself. (laughs) And that's something that I think a lot of people don't want to hear. But then also there's a lot of really, really well-meaning people who I think really care about the world that have been very, very misled about how the world is actually working. Um, And, you know, a a part of the project that we're talking about is sort of the, um, the, that veganism as the like catch-all solution to every aspect of climate change and just global crises in general, you know, it offers a solution to basically all of the problems that we see. The only way that a person can really embody that view of the world, you have to be so separate from the things that you're consuming to actually believe that you are somehow escaping death and harm and destruction. It's just, it's a very, very simplistic solution that isn't a solution at all. And so that we've gotten a lot of negative feedback from, from vegans, which is fair because we are kind of throwing punches at that sort of ideology, but the interesting thing about it, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But the interesting thing about it is that um, one of the things that we're trying to show is that, you know, we have we've interviewed and gotten to meet some of the most incredible farmers in the world who are revitalizing landscapes and regenerating land with animals. And, you know, they they kill them for food and they um, but these animals, they live the most like beautiful lives and the humans are just part of this like incredible ecosystem of life and these farmers have accepted the 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 death that is required for them to live and they've taken responsibility for it and they're very reverent about it and but oh go ahead well let me ask jump in real quick and this is a phrase we've we've used a couple times where you guys just used a couple times the death that's necessary to live which is a very profoundly eastern christian concept I mean, the resurrection itself mm-hmm. fits right into that. But what do, if something has to die, are you guys implying that our way of life has to die in civilization, for example? Civilization, I'm guessing, is not a profoundly good term in the kind of environmentalism you guys are talking about in your project. Civilization implies control and and 
and and probably bad things. So do we have to change what we think of as civilization? Are you asking human beings, individuals like myself to rethink that? Well, this is great because you're getting at, to an, I think, another aspect of what we mean by death in the garden, which is that, yeah, in many ways, what we're, we're in the kind of fam- famous Kubler-Ross uh, stages of, of grief, you know, where we're in denial that this way of life has to die, you know, and the longer we hold on to that truth, uh, the more destruction we give. And this yeah. isn't, and, you know, and so it, I kind of want to go back a little bit to make this point is that within as a broad stroke environmentalism, it's humans are so funny. There are so many different groups and animosity towards the other ways of viewing, you know, you have the purely academic Michael Mann, the guy who made the hockey stick, like, let's just get carbon out of the atmosphere. Everything else is fine to the deep greens who hate another version of deep green thinker. You know, it's this back and forth and everybody has their different philosophy, but ultimately I think what ties them all together is this deep longing for a healthy planet full of life. You know, there are those common things that tie them together, but and, and so this term civilization it's within the environmental group is so loaded because within certain aspects of the environment, environmental movement, you know, you have civilization is the evil, is the nexus of evil, is the ultimate representation of our control over nature. And in many ways, I think that narrative has some truth to it. But at the same time, throughout all history, Peoples with different epistemologies, people who saw the world as animate, did form various types sure. of societies and civilization. And, and you know, so I, it's, I think it's a little easy to just blanket term civilization is the problem. I think maybe right now, what we're working with is this industrial civilization, a civilization that in its core views the world as reducible and machine-like. All right, Andrew, thank you for the music. You have cued me in to our advertisement today. Today's advertisement is for the First Things Foundation pod course hosted by yours truly. This pod course in a series of three, we're going to study the history of race, old world and new world. We're going to look at critical race theory and try to figure out what have people thought in history. And then in the coolest turn of events, We're going to bring in our field workers and their friends from around the world and have them weigh in each time we meet to figure out what is race and how has it been understood in the old world and the new world. That is our pod course starting September 19th at 7.30 p.m. every week for eight weeks. Join us. All you got to do is be a recurring donor. Thank you. Love to see you. It feels like there's some spiritual attentiveness that you've acquired. Something happened to you too, because are you all, are you all practicing a a faith in your mind? In my mind? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) I would say that it's, it doesn't have a container. Um, I I heard a quote recently on a podcast that I was listening to. Someone was saying that um, when they hear that someone is spiritual, not religious, it just means that they practice their religion alone. And I think that that's where I'm at in my life is Uh, that I'm unfortunately sort of um, cordoned to solitude with my, with my faith and um, how that is expressing itself, I think is going to evolve over time. But I've 
certainly over the past like year and a half, two years, really developed a relationship with God that is a bit indescribable and ineffable to me at this point. But I'm just really open to the, the conversation. I guess the reason with- the reason I ask is because the environmentalism, the hope that you guys are presenting, it feels like a metanoia, the Greek word for to turn around and to wake up, to change direction. And that Greek word is deeply involved in my tradition. And it feels like you all are asking us to wake up to something. So let's just talk about that. Are we, is there something about the way we know ourselves as human beings in the West, in this industrial society that you all are starting to identify as necessary for change? We have to fix. There's something spiritual outlook that we have. Forget God. We can leave God out of it. I mean, can you though? That's a funny concept too, but, (laughs) but for our conversation, is there something in the people called Westerners, this speaks to our show, right? That has made this inevitable, this mechanistic destruction. And if there is, what should we be moving to adopt in your mind? I think that part of it is that we have all been brought up in a very extractive society. So we are part of an open loop system. We're not really contributing anything back into the web of life with our lives. And that is just the structure of industrial civilization as it is, is like if I'm the the city that I'm living in now, I, in order for me to live resources from all over the world have to be shipped into the city, extracted elsewhere, shipped in so that I can function and I'm not giving anything back. Um, And I think that the, the part of this that is missing from a lot of people's view is this relationship with death because what we have witnessed and we've experienced is that death isn't an ending, you know, and it, it can be um, a metaphysical lack of ending, but also in physicality, death doesn't actually end. It's not, it's not over full stop. It's not utter annihilation because if you're, if you die and you leave your body, some, someone puts your body outside, mm. there's millions of insects that are going to be eating your body that it's, you, you could turn into plants and trees and be re-consumed into the, the ecosystem and more life actually comes from your death. And I think that that's something that people have really missed is that we don't, we, we have something to contribute to the rest of the living community. Even and in it's our, Yeah. And, and our separation from the living community as we've gotten more and more uh, stuck in cities and there's more concrete around us and there's not wildness around us. There's not the mystery around us. You know, I've been thinking recently about how where we live, um, sometimes it gets so smoggy because we just have really, really bad air quality here um, that you can't see the stars. And seeing the stars, that's something that our ancestors would have seen every single day. And they would know, they would know just every single day they're reminded Mm -hmm. that there's something greater going on here than just me. That there's a, a, a sense of smallness, a sense of the mystery of wildness. And the further we get into this in urbanized industrial world, the farther away we get from the animacy of it. Even, even in this room, they're, they're, everything is inert. You know, I, I can't like pay attention to anything because nothing is, nothing is alive. Everything is, has been sort of rendered 
inert, at least to my perception. Over time, this stuff will dissolve and disintegrate and be reabsorbed back into the system. But it's not on a time scale that I can witness myself. So am I right? So the implication is that is that there is a, in the animistic worldview, there is a nature to what we call the nature. So the tree has a nature. And I'm hearing you say something like, in a time before industrialization and modernity, we were more positioned to recognize the true nature, which I think most cultures would have called the spirit of the thing. And so we've been removed from our ability to see the nature. Now here, nature, there is spirit. We see nature. I'm looking at it right now. But are you guys saying something like we got, because I'm hearing you imply that animism or the animistic age or the age of polytheism or the age before atheism, it allowed us some pos- something positive. It is the thing positive that when I look out and see grass, I see much more than grass. I see its nature, its spirit, and that would be good if I saw it that way. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yes. And I think this goes back to like the question I saw you before here too, which was the way I like to see it is, and this is what we're coming to as well, is it's like, which, what prism are you yeah. looking through to yeah. understand the life, yeah. uh, understand the world? And and so when, when you go back in time and you, you see the state of, right before the dawn of like modern science and rationalism, you know, you have the world's religions and all that they have in common and then when the Enlightenment happens and the Renaissance and all these, these historical moments within scientific thinking, you get all these characters who are hypothesizing about this materialistic worldview, what you see is science beginning to conform itself to the scientific worldview to mm-hmm. survive. Mm-hmm. You get a, a Christianity that is animistic that becomes materialistic and you have a christianity that can accept a world machine and god is separate god put the world machine into order and stepped away and right. let you know the the, the algorithm take right. over and so for us what we, the way i see it is that there's there's a, there's many many prisms to look through on the way the universe works and is and each one of those prisms is going to give you part of the truth. Like the materialist reductionist worldview didn't not provide truths. We're right. talking through laptops. You know, we can go all the cliches to justify. <laughs> we are talking the laptops. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it provided truths for us. But I think what we're seeing in the global crises is the extent to which those truths half truths can provide us with what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And until we recognize that we're looking through a prism that's offering us so much, you know, it's like this saying that science is like a flashlight in the dark, wherever you're going to point it, you're going to see some stuff, but all around you is dark. And the moment you look away from that one spot, it kind of fades off into darkness yeah, again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we got stuck with this one prism and I, and I don't want to bash this prism. I think there's a lot to say, obviously about what this prism has given us but it's a half truth, you know, and until we can really reconcile this other truth, this other prism to look at life uh, and accept all the real truths of the natural world as, a, as that the, the world is a living mystery right. and can't be pinned down, then we're, we're kind of stunted. C.S. Lewis does, you're reminding me, 
with these insights. Basically, he comes to a conclusion in a number of essays. I forget the exact essay. But what he says is, is that science is modern man's magic. Mm. What he's trying to say, if I get this right, forgive me, guys, if I don't. But in a nutshell, is that what science does for us is allows us to turn the material world into our desire, into the thing that we love the most. And it actually does that. It can actually pay off in that sense. And so what used to be the the magical payoff before often led to a spiritual conversation about the afterlife. Now the payoff is immediate and it's temporal and it's material. And what he writes or implies is no one will stop this kind of magic. It's impossible because of the human weakness. And maybe that leads us to our conversation, right? Is that if this kind of worldview is doing this to us, if, if in some ways we become the dog that salivates, because look, I could turn that tree into a chair and sell that bad boy and make some serious cash. Like tomorrow, how do we stop the salivating? How do we stop our nature from wanting to turn that tree into cash? How do we do this? I, I'm not asking like you got to know. There's a big question. But isn't that, the, isn't that kind of a core part of what you guys are working on in your project? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, and I think one of the things that I continue to come to is that humans are known for several things. You know, we make technology, we create culture, and we create a lot of art. That's something that's very unique about humans. Um, but we also seem to be inherently religious. And I think that what has happened is that people are if you are unconscious of the thing that you are ascribing divinity to, then you are going to be taken over by it. It's going to be a, a profane Godhead. Mm, interesting. Um, if, if you can have some consciousness about what that is, what is sacred to you and use that word, use those words to describe the world around you, then maybe there can be a shift that happens because right now what has become of the world is that the de facto Godhead has become money. And this is, you know, this is true even in countries that are deeply religious, you know, yeah. this is yeah. sort of taken yeah. over the entire world um, because it is uh, money is what necessitates our ability to live um, rather than, you know, the land around you providing for you directly. Uh, people have been, um, you know, abstracted in this way. Uh, and, and that's, that's an economic system, you know, that's the, the sort of um, cronyism that we experience all around us. And, and I think you're right though, in that, like, how do we put the genie back in the bottle? Like, you know, human humanity has accepted the magnificent bribe. That is this way of life. That's well said, that it's, yeah. it's really nice to be able to take a hot shower every day. Like, I'm not going to deny that. And uh, it's nice to be able to go to the grocery store and, you know, buy whatever I want, buy mangoes or, you know, but at the same time, I think that deep within everybody, there is a sense of awareness that it's like, yeah. this thing has kind of gotten to a complexity that I don't know how it, long it can sustain itself. Yeah. Um, and so our sense, I guess, is that the direction that people need to move and obviously like it's going to look different for everybody. But deepening the awareness of, of, of history, of how right. historically this sort of exact scenario that we're in now has happened on smaller scales, you know, like 
civilizations have fallen before, like, and this idea that this global civilization is too big to fail. I mean, just reminds me of the fact that banks were too big to fail, you know, oh, 12 years violent. ago. And it's yeah, violent. Well, it's a very violent ph- philosophical approach where mm-hmm. now we're just going to, we're going to live with the, the ugly creature that we've created because otherwise we lose more, you know, we just keep mm-hmm. building the Frankenstein and, and the Frankenstein is just going to punch us all in the face, but go ahead, Jake, I interrupted you. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, this, this question of how do cultures change is the funnest question. And it's the hardest question to come up with answers. And it's, I've asked myself this over and over again, like what is the actual impetus for a culture to change? You see change throughout history. That's clear. Like cultures change their epistemologies their ideologies or technologies. Like they all have changed radically. And so I've, I've asked myself repeatedly, how how will our culture change? One way that cultures change is because they meet their end. You know, they play out an idea to its extremis. And then when they're left with no other option, they search for other answers. And I think we're getting to that place as a modern culture. I think people are getting to their wits end of like, we all know the world's ending. We all know the climate's bad. We all know we're in the sixth spread extinction. We all know all this terrible stuff, yet nothing has changed. And over the next few decades, we're just going to get beaten into the ground because like, we're going to be left with no other option. It's going to become yeah. clear that we need different answers for these solutions. Okay. Then, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Mary. Well, but then there's also sort of the concept of like the hundredth mon- monkey, you know, that exactly. there is also the opportunity that like, we don't have to, we see the crisis, we see what's happening and we don't actually have to like succumb to it. You know, there's, I don't know if you saw the movie that just came out. Um, don't look up. It's like, about. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed uh, that. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of, it was entertaining. I thought it was really funny. Um, but uh, the, the narrative around it is it's supposed to be an, an analogy for climate change, but sure. it's very like overly simplified. Um, because we don't actually have to just acquiesce to this thing. We don't have to just be like, okay, well, there's literally nothing we can do. It's, it's, there are things that people can do, not like action wise. That's the hard thing is like, we're, we don't really yeah, want I was to just going to ask you to tell us, but go ahead. I have a feeling you're going to take a different direction. What are the, yeah. what are some things? Well, I think, I think the thing that really would behoove everybody is to start asking these questions rather than assuming that, you know, cause in the movie, uh, like basically the entire world is like outsourcing their faith in, um, the, or their ability to do anything about this problem to the government, to scientists, mm-hmm. we need to cease. We need to stop doing that. Like we need to stop assuming that this is a problem that can be solved by the same solutions that created the problem. And if I can add on to this, another nuance of this, the, the comet symbolism misses is that it's climate change is something outside of us being mm-hmm. acted upon us mm-hmm. rather than something that's within us that we are acting upon the world. Yeah. And I think that's the crucial thing that needs to be shifted. Right. That's the most interesting narrative for me in this mm -hmm. and Watar is that we're not objectively apart from any of the experiences we're participating in them. And this again is the Orthodox narrative, right? Is that God and man participate one with the other. Let me put it like this. I think this will help. What I'm trying to say is there are many in the tradition of the Eastern, the Eastern 
the, the, the Christian East who say things like if man's soul, the soul of man living and breathing in this world was healthier then you would see fewer volcanic eruptions. You would see fewer tsunamis, fewer pandemics that they're actually related and directly so in that the healthier, in other words, the garden of Eden did not see volcanic eruptions. It didn't see the death of trees and bees. It saw perfection and syncopation and unity. So there's some derivation that happened. There's some breakdown and degradation that took place in nature because it took place in us. Mm. That's a pretty profound concept. And that would place all of the work almost. Now, this again is the elevation of man though, right guys? It puts man in this unique, it does put nature, what we think of as created non-human stuff at a level below. I wonder if that would be okay with you, or do you see there's a total equality in what, what is, what humankind is and what nature kind is? Is there a total equality in syncopation? Well, this is, this is great. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because this, this goes to another one of these. So one of our favorite authors, Daniel Quinn, who wrote Ishmael, yeah, yeah. It, in some of his other books, he really breaks down some of his philosophy in one of these things is called mother culture. You know, the mother culture is the ambient unquestioned thing that you hear in your everyday life, the way objects are shaped to the music you hear. Mother culture is written into there very subversively. And one of the points of mother culture that he points out is the hierarchy of being. And to Daniel Quinn, and to, I guess, me as well, the way I see this is that the hierarchy of being is one of the core misunderstandings of the natural world because the web of life is not a chain of being with man on the top as, their, as our separate angelic selves that are so unique and different from the rest of the web of life, which gives us dominion over the web of life. Mm -hmm. But life is rather this circle, this grand universal feast of life eating life in this fantastic, complex circle of life, death, entropy, decay, birth, you know, and, is, and until we, as long as we break that circle and make it a linear chain to us, the more destruction happens. But if we can reenter that circle, the more um, we participate yeah. in, you know what I mean? And I think that having the awareness that we are the only ones who can resolve this crisis, you know, at the end of the day, like humanity does have to be responsible for the mess that it created. But the only way that we're going to be able to be responsible to that is to step back into this sort of relationship with the rest of the world. And I think that that's sort of, from what I'm understanding of Orthodox Christianity, the awareness that, you know, man can be as divine as Christ, mm -hmm. that sort of idea that that's actually like the goal. Um, and, and, and maybe I don't know enough about this, but I would say that there, there's something about Christ that you can see also in the way that a, 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 I don't know, like a sheep naturally can kind of exist in its ecosystem sure. without causing its destruction or, you know, all of these, there's so many, there's so much perfection in the natural world. And um, for whatever reason, 
you know, we led ourselves astray. And I think that that's what, that's something that I really like about what I'm understanding of um, this idea that like uh, humans are, we must strive towards this divinity. It's, it's not this thing that's like inherent to us that we have to actually earn it. Yeah. Um. To me, I feel like that is, that equates to the responsibility that I feel about rebalancing the amount of life that I've taken with the amount of life that I give. And so I think that that's, that's part of where humanity, humanity needs to go and why we are, we reject the idea that solar panels and electric vehicles and even conservation and uh, vegan diets are going to get us to that place because we have to strip down this way that we've been thinking about the world. So be practical for a minute. So jump in both of you be practical for our, for our listeners. Then I agree. This all, this makes sense. I might, I might add one thing, Jake, there may be, we tend to think linear or circular. There may be a spiral type of Mm. Mm -hmm. spiritual anthropology that says, well, while we aren't fully in a circle, we come back around and things appear very similar to where they were. But in the end, we actually end up higher or lower. But there is a linear equation that operates at the same time and in syncopation and, 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 and alongside the circular. Yeah. In a spiral I couldn't agree going. more. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. I, I, that would be Orthodox theology on time is that it, it's both repeating, but also it has a telos. It has an end, mm-hmm. but be practical guys. Because I think most of the people are listening to this show. They know environmentalism a certain way. They know it as climate change happening. And then people need to fix the earth. It kind of the way that I hear you saying no to, yeah. um, what do we have to do though? Uh, what you're made in charge. And your project splashes in a way and, and you're invited into power chambers, which, which I really don't wish on you, but <laughs> I'm serious, but you yeah, are, <laughs> is there a practical way to address this positive spiritual change that would then lead to a proper equilibrium in, in, in the environment? Do you, do you, do you, have you thought about that? That's a really good question. And first of all, I love this, the spiral. I think I agree completely. That's a, a really good way of putting it what and to answer your question i think again first what needs to be done is we have to begin uh like especially like even when it comes to like language like we always ask ourselves like what is there to do what action yeah to be that's taken, a good point. you know and so i think again it's like first we have to step back and, and make sure that we're not in that same mode of thinking you know what i mean yes that's and, a brilliant and, that's good that's a good point and and my thing is, is that just like life on earth, nothing happens overnight. It's going to be this slow growth and this slow transformation. And so for me, it's like, okay, say you're somebody who's listening to this and you're like, damn, they're right. They're making some good points. I do think the world is a living mystery. And I do think the way out of this mess is to begin engaging with the spiral of life and death and the beauty, the beauty that is the living earth. How do I do that? I live in the suburbs. I have a job. I drive a car, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's like, okay, well, first of all, don't double down. Don't buy a Tesla. Don't, don't, you know, invest in solar panels thinking you're going to save the world. Let's first, like, let's not double down on the mess that's creating the mess. Let's, let's pull ourselves back. And how can we as individuals 
on a day-to-day basis with the language we use, with the way we interact with our food, question where it comes from, think about our loved ones in a way that actually we feel is true, I think we'll be surprised by how slowly over the years of our lives we make we may not make one decision today, but tomorrow we might start making a different decision. And tomorrow we might make the effort to go meet our local farmer's market. And, you know, in 15 years, I might find myself owning a piece of land and having a community where we give thanks to the food and the life and, and we raise animals and plants. And it's this different relationship. And I think the alchemy, the inner alchemy of first, like distilling what you think is the it's universe weird you know, will over time begin to change. And it's happened for us already. I mean, even since starting this film and now granted, again, we're still living in an apartment and we drive cars and we do all these things. And it's not that any one thing is bad, but we see in ourselves this desire for different things. Like Mm -hmm. we have very little desire for the monetary success, but we do have a desire for is to have land and to get our friends there and to have a different life. And we feel ourselves being magnetized towards something different because we're internalizing these lessons. Yeah. And a a big thing that I think that people can practically do is really allow themselves to feel the grief of all of this really set, like uh, to go off of what Jake was saying about alchemy, you know, get yourself into that space of the negredo, like break yourself down hold all of the complexity and all of the challenges that we face in the world and don't try to avoid them by these simple solutions that, you know, cause like, if you think about it logically, it's like, okay, we're creating solar panels to stop having to stop mining coal, but we're going to have to mine all of this material for the solar panels. And then we're going to have to continue the mining, the process of mining. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to continue fossil fuels to keep that industry going. Like these things, if you really break them down, it, like, I don't have to go into all of the detail to sort of make it clear that these things don't resolve the issues that we think that they're resolving. Um, they they sort of more. just, yeah, they, they just sort of delay the issue. You're describing the intuition of, of, of many people when they hear answers to climate change. You did it really well. Most people don't put words to it, but they their intuition is is are we really going to fix that by doing that? Because won't that be that? And then they stop real quickly and say, Oh God, that's just way too complicated. And then they're dismissed by many in the scientific community. I won't say scientists, but in scientism, in that community, they're dismissed as fools. And then the second thing they are, they're dismissed as participators because they don't have the proper knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what really drives me nuts, sorry, I'm going on a riff, but what, what drives me nuts is their intuition has deep value. Now they might not be able to articulate the way you just did, but I'm still sticking with the fact that you're not going to figure out every one of those variables. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about this. That dude's not dumb, but he's like, I'm not even close to understanding the variables necessary to fix material reality. I mean, it's, it's not even on the radar mm-hmm. that a human mind can do that. Even 10 of them in a room. But people are undertaking to do that, which I think for me as a common person outside the environmental movement says, it doesn't feel doable. But the other thing that you are describing, it, I, 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 I'd love to know what you guys think about this. As you were describing what to do, Jake, it was gorgeous. I felt like as a historian of sort of the old world, I felt like you were describing most prayer lives of most pre-industrial societies. Mm. 
because the prayer life is the location. The GPS would locate you in your prayer life when it comes to doing the things you describe, which is cultivation. So cultivation of thought is done in the prayer life. It got moved in the enlightenment and in, in, in the industrial world. It got moved into the classroom. But cultivation of notion, of idea, the cultivation of the thought, right, that you talked about that leads to change, that's done in the prayer life in the old world. And where one thing you see that's in common with all the old world cultures, where there was very, let's say, less environmental, um, shall we say, degradation, where the environment was less in danger, what did they have in common? is they all shared this prayer life. Now, mm -hmm. it's not the same God, so we can talk about that. But the prayer life, the moment when you had to be attentive to the shaman, to the priest, the prayer life when you had to be attentive to the holy sacred writings, the prayer life when you had to be attentive to something, not your own idea, but in a silent mode, I think it gives us a chance to change because I, because I think a lot of people I know would have rejected what you guys were saying, which is, I don't want to talk about what you do. I want to talk about what you have to become because it sounds like, it sounds yeah. like, <laughs> it sounds like crystals and stuff, but I would just say to you guys, I'm on the same page is that it's not crystals and stuff. It's an actual doing called praying or meditating, if you like that. And it's an actual event that should happen for you as Muslims five times a day, Christians, it's liturgical cycle, the Buddhist, it should happen to you on the regular. I'm not saying to you guys, I'm not preaching. I'm trying to say that if you were to adopt this as a way to change, then you would adopt a life of prayer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting. Oh, there, oh, there's so, there's so much in there. I want to touch. I'm not going to miss some good stuff. Uh, what I want to say to that is, yeah, I I think that, you know, I, we meditate as of late every day. And I guess at the end of every one of my meditations, which is just a mindfulness meditation, just clearing my head, being mindful of my thoughts at the end, I guess I do what you could call a prayer. For me, it's intention setting where it's like, I remind myself of like, who I am, where I am in the universe, yeah, yeah. what my role is, what I, and then what I'm trying to do and essentially what story I'm trying to tell myself and reminding myself, because I think, and I, you're so right. that all of this sounds so namby pamby and just like, Oh, spiritual, you know, <laughs> yeah. voodoo stuff. But like, ultimately I think it's really important for people to understand that like, we are a storytelling species. Mm -hmm. Like the defining, one of the defining characters of our species is that we are a cultural species. We create culture and culture yeah. comes from stories. Yeah. And the stories we tell ourselves inform how we act in the world and how the world works, you know? And so it's so valuable that we we look at those stories. And again, it's even as I say, it, I'm like, that just sounds too easy. It's so simple, but it's like, it really is these stories. And so I, I think until people actually say, you know what, what story am I telling myself? Yeah. What story is the world at large telling me about the, the way the world works? And is that a good story or is it a stupid story? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Does it make, yeah, does it make Do, any sense at all? <laughs> Dostoevsky says what you're saying, Jake. Mm. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist in the 19th century says it straight up. He just says it. I've said it many times on the show, but they, he says point blank. He goes, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Because this was the time when uh, Western um, um, 
the, the Enlightenment thinkers of the West, especially from France, were coming to to, to Russia, 1850s. And they it's very interesting because the Russian intelligentsia at that time, the upper class, all spoke French. And Dostoevsky was like, what the what the hell is this? Why are we speaking French again? And what he said is, he said, look, you guys are bringing your stories. I got your story. Evolution was one of them. And mm. he's like, but here's the deal. It's just an ugly story. <laughs> it's, it's just uh, it's just ugly. It's just everyone fights. They fight it out. And the winner is the one who wins. And then the last one to live is the one who just sets all the agenda for those to come. It's like, uh, he said, I just like the Christ story. So what he says is, because he's a writer, the narrative itself gives life, just like you said, Jake. And in living the life that the narrative offers to you, you then become the story. And it's, it, in other words, it's just like the death, what you were saying, Mary, the death life notion, which is in death, we imbibe all that was into who we are. That's why I love cultures that say thank you at the dinner table, whatever kind of thanks it is to the dead thing on their plate. <laughs> Like yeah. a culture that doesn't say thank you to the dead thing on their plate is, I would go so far as to say, is a very sick culture. Absolutely. Well, and I think that, you know, we see it all around us. We see the irreverent way that we talk with each other. And, the you know, I think COVID has exploded that notion. Um, but uh, I, I just think it's so sad that we are so irreverent to yeah. toward what yeah. we eat toward how we exist in the world and how we don't have these moments anymore where we ask ourselves who we are and where we're going and what is our responsibility to the rest of the world. And I think it's beautiful that there are cultures still living today that have that have that experience um, of the beauty of, of, of a beautiful story, because what's an uglier story than the story of the machine? It's this that That's everything right. is a dead commodity. The world is just made out of like ma matter right. that doesn't have any sense, no soul. There's nothing important. We're all just right. random like collections of molecules and cells. That it's, ugly. Life. it's ugly. It's, it's horrible. Ugly. It's, yeah, it's, it's ugly. You can see the end result of the story. Like if we're, we've been telling ourselves a story, look around, go travel a bit. I love it. That's what this story provides. Yeah. Well, we you can know. tell a different story, but here's the problem. You have to believe it. And this yeah. is the tricky part. I don't mean in some magical way. I'm not talking about, I'm not going to like hand out tracks to you about St. John. I'm not doing it, but I'll say this. You do have, not you guys, but we, as a we have to invest in the knowing. It's just not going to happen. It's just not, mm -hmm. yeah. it's a participatory thing, but can you guys make this movie? Is it going to happen? What can we do it's, to help? It's <laughs> happening, man. <laughs> we, we have come to some really amazing conclusions about how to structure this and make it make any sense whatsoever because yeah. we are very well aware of the fact that this has been like a journey that has not only been the past like two years, but also our entire lives of mm -hmm. like a deep sense of like something's off here, something's weird. And so what we're going to try to do is we're just going to try to break down this sort of machine world. And we're going to try to break it down in a way that is understandable to people and explain, well, yeah. explain what is happening in the name of climate change right now. There is yeah. a lot of devastation and colonialism and really, really horrible happening because we have this idea that uh, carbon needs to be taken out of the atmosphere at all costs. And I think that that's, you know, it's more colonialism, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's more command and control, isn't it? It's the same yeah. mindset. It's conquest. That's, it's that's one thing we're trying to cover in our film is that colonialism 
at least this Western materialistic Newtonian Cartesian mm -hmm. uh, colonialism never ended. It's still happening. Go ask the Sami in Northern Norway, the colonial in the name of saving the planet is happening to them is happening to people in South. It's all over the world. Colonialism is still happening in the name of this story. And so one of the things that I think is maybe the hardest part of making a, a film like this is how do you, how do you communicate these ideas to people who are, who are in a story they don't understand so far that they don't understand they're in a story. Yeah. Because that, question. you know, because this is the hardest part is that in the modern world, we think we're ultimately, in, we, we have transcended religion. We have transcended mythology. We have transcended stories. We don't even tell ourselves stories anymore. We just live in the pure facts of the universe. There is no story being told, but it's interesting. You go back to John uh, or Francis Bacon, rather, who really started modern science and he wrote this book called New Atlantis, where he prophesized a world in which there was no, there was a, first of all, a separation of church and state. But instead of the union of church and state, you would have the union of the cathedrals of science and state. And so, our, <laughs> yes, you know, he did. <laughs> and so, yes, and, he that, did. and that's the world we live in, where we live under the, the, the science mythology well I, I shouldn't even say scientific scientist mythology it's it's uh the ma the materialist yes, scientist that's right that's right philosophy yeah, i agree with that. um you know yeah gosh could will you guys you brought up francis bacon can we 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 keep going but can we can we end with this or at least put this in here uh have you have you heard about our lighter meter exam on on, on our podcast watar uh -uh. i don't think uh -uh. so I didn't tell you about it, but I'm going to throw it at you. You ready? I yeah, think I yeah, have yeah. a pen. I really want you to take this. It's a little test, five question test. What it tries to do is because I'm fascinated where you all are, because I, I think you're going to end up on one part on this exam. If you'll take it with me, basically what it tries to do is early on in the show, we realized people were like old world, new world. I don't really get it. Give me something tangible. So we, we created this exam. It's very scientific guys. <laughs> We ran it by MIT. They said this thing's perfect. Okay. So it's good. the lightometer. How much of a light person are you? Light being a child of the enlightenment. Mm. And how much of an old world person, pre-enlightenment, indigenous, animistic, or really orthodox Christian? Because I throw all my, but it's scientific. It's objective. I'm just telling you it's objective. So <laughs> you want to take the test with me? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. It's really simple and fun. And I'll, I'll tell you guys where you where you shape at. I'm just grabbing a pen. Eleven's for both of you. Here is, ladies and gentlemen, if you're still listening, first of all, you're the number one, and I love you. But here is the, you are not, you are not, the Francis Bacon Award. You did not win the Francis Bacon Award. Which is, which is old what world thinking has the same appeal to you as placing leeches on an open sore. So awesome. you are not, <laughs> you are not the ultimate new worlder. You are not the high nooner. That's the bright light of the new world hovers at high noon for you. Just right there, always shining down like a perma halo on you. You are not that new world. You're also not the shining city dweller on the hill which is you have hope for the modern world because you trust ultimately only in science and Reddit and social media. That's not you. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> but you are the suburban 
Although a high suburban, you feel romantic about the old world, but hierarchy is a word that you'd rather read about in a book. It feels like you should want to obey your elders a lot more than you actually do. The individual is not more important than the group, except, well, sometimes you feel more important than lots of dumb groups. (laughs) So you are, and there's two the villager, that's a 12. You guys scored 11. That's pretty old world. And then there's the Charlemagne. That's really old world, full retro, scary. That's a 15. So what <laughs> is all this? I wanted to do this. I haven't done this in a while with a guest because you all are defying so many philosophical and sort of spiritual presuppositions. It's very interesting. You have this cool way of seeing environmentalism with a lot of new world implementations, but also this cool ability to throw back. And I wanted to test that. And it, you know, this is the ultimate test. So (laughs) now I have facts about you. (laughs) Your 11s. Do you guys want to add anything? Um, What can we, what can we do to support your, uh, your film or where can we go to hear your podcast and just, how can we help? Because I want to be around as you guys uh, build this film, because I oh, really yeah. think you're doing something special. Not oh, only are you, you waking up, but you're also going to allow us to wake up with you, which is super cool. Well, thank you for saying thank that. You, and thank you. thank you for having us on. Uh, it was, it was the first time I'd like reached out to someone and been like, I just really want to be on your podcast. And I <laughs> like, it was a bit, it was a bit hard to be vulnerable like that, but I'm so glad that I did um, because this Sister, really it was fun. great. I'm glad yeah. you did it too. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and, and I, I just want to continue this conversation because I think the main thing that we're trying to convey with our project above all is that this is a lifelong conversation. Like there's no easy answers that everything is complex and becoming more and more complex every single day. And so just like continuing dialogues is so important to us. Um, but our podcast is just available anywhere uh, that you can listen to podcasts. It's death in the garden. Um, and if you can like either on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating, give us a comment. That's a huge way to help us sure. out. Sure. As you know, those things help big time. Yep. And then we have all of the social medias. Um, we're not going to be very active on them in the future, but uh, we have De- death in the garden um, on Instagram, death underscore the garden on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. Our Substack is really where we're going to be trying to put most of our energy. Uh, and that's just death in the garden um, we have a lot of really cool writing and long form videos that we're releasing. That's like yeah. behind the scenes yeah, and unreleased stuff nice, in the film. Yeah. Some, some you're teasers, very, you know? Your stuff's very beautiful. Well, it's it's a sharp sight. I, I, I look forward to seeing this. There's a guy, Michael Schellenberger. Do you know who he is? I, was he on your, I, I don't name. think he was on there. He, I met him at a very unique conference I went to and he, he was pushing the idea that the environmentalism, just the way you're describing it, is dead, won't work. But his one of his alternative uh, ways to go was nuclear. He said mm. nuclear is actually the most, it's the most sensible alternative. Now, I, I don't want to get into that here as we go out, but um, he had the same vibe as you guys. Mm. Um, smart, a little, a little wacky, but willing mm-hmm. to be, willing to try. Uh, he was raising a big money uh, for a film that he made. Michael Schellenberger, check him out. Oh, um, and I, if I was you guys, I would even reach out to him. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think we was, have one of his books. I should I should read it and check it out. Yeah, because he had a. a this was um, six years ago when I met him. He had a unique ver vision, and I think your vision that the environmental life can be improved through the spiritual life is fascinating. It's also right up my alley. So, mm -hmm. really appreciate y'all y'all coming on here. Well, that was Jake Marquez and Marion Morgan of Death in the Garden. Go check out their film, check out their trailers, check out their podcasts. Great interviews. Some heavy hitters over there at Death in the Garden. You can find their www in our pod notes. This is John Hears, Shenny Skaggy Marjos to you. That means to you the victory. That's what's said around the capy table. Come join our podcast. Come join our people in the field on a capy journey. And most of all, we'd love you to be a monthly donor. Monthly donors get all kinds of benefits, but they also benefit our incredible field workers who work side by side in crazy isolated communities, deeply impoverished places where beautiful people live. And we you know what they want to do there. They want to build up their own projects and their own vision for a better life. We help them. That's what we do. This is First Things Foundation's podcast called Watar. Au revoir. Nakvamdis, peace to you, much love.